If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's episode, we'll be delving into how human history has been shaped by the physical geography of the Earth with Lewis Dartnell. Lewis is the author of Origins, How the Earth Made Us, and he spoke to BBC World Histories editor Matt Elton. As might become apparent in the conversation, this interview took place a few weeks back before the current coronavirus outbreak. So the first question, really, I suppose, um, we often think about human history primarily in terms of human interaction. Yeah. Um, and your book explores the ways in which the physical earth has shaped sort of human society and human history. Uh, in what ways would you say it's been a leading protagonist in that story? <laughs> well, this, I, think, I think when we study history at school or at university, we read popular history books, it, it's the people that we focus on. And that makes a lot of sense. We, we focus on the great leaders or the generals or the revolutionaries, or we focus on other human aspects like uh, technological innovations and, and how that shifted society and changed the course of history. But what I was interested in exploring for this new book, for Origins, How the Earth Shaped Human History, was looking beneath all of those human layers of history, of, of the politics, of the culture, of the sociology and, and the economic uh, type layers. How do all of those rest on features of the planet itself? And then clearly, features of planet Earth have had a huge influence on the course of history and different opportunities and constraints that it provides. 
But I think a lot of that is ignored in, or has been ignored traditionally in historical accounts of what happened and why. So as, as a scientist, I am not an historian. I'll make that very clear. I am a scientist. I came from biology originally before getting involved in astrobiology research. But I wanted to look at, at that kind of science of, of big history and, and explore all that, if you'll excuse the pun, all of the, the ground rock that lays beneath um, what we traditionally cover in history. Um, and that's obviously uh, quite a big subject. Um, how how did you go about narrowing down what to focus on and what sort of broad themes start to emerge when, when you do so? Yes. Yeah, so, so for both this book, for Origins, and also my last book, The Knowledge, it wasn't a case of finding enough interesting stuff to talk about and put in a book of 100,000 words. It was trying to work out what we could justifiably leave out and still have a coherent and an expressive story. And so when I was researching Origins, I did an enormous amount of reading of uh, world history, different civilizations, uh, different transitions and, 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 and processes. And then with my science hat on throughout the entire process, trying to find those bridges, those, those themes that linked between different features of our Earth. So where different metal resources are found or mountain ranges or features of the landscape, the, the, the choke points in the oceans, the process of plate tectonics, the churning of the atmosphere high above our head. These on the whole happen in very slow timescales, but that doesn't mean they haven't affected our fervent, bubbling human history. Um, on that note, what, um, what do we know and what stories can we tell about humans' very first uh, days on Earth, and in what ways have they perhaps still influenced life today in the 21st century? Hmm, so we could look at our origins as a species. And when we try to explain and understand what is it that drove the evolution of us, of, of Homo sapiens, but indeed all the other human-related species, the hominin species in East Africa. And fundamentally what needed to happen to convert, to transform hairy, tree-swinging, ape-like creatures into naked, or at least hairless, upright, bipedal, hominin-type species, is you had to turn rainforest into grassland, into dry savannah, that the ecosystem we find in East Africa today. And that was happening beneath our feet over millions of years while we lived there. But the curious thing is that plenty of places around the world have, have dried out, and you evolve the camel. So what was it specifically in East Africa uh, with the tectonic ripping open of the planet there of the great East African Rift Valley that drove our evolution to become so exquisitely intelligent and adaptable um, and versatile? And what seems to have been the, 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 the issue, what seems to have happened is that there was this unique confluence of planetary features in East Africa for the last five, six million years. There was the landscape of the great East African Rift Valley interacting with wobbles in our planet's orbit around the sun and, and the tilt, the so-called Milankovitch cycles. And the interaction between those two features created periods of extreme climatic instability. So us humans, we evolved our big brains as the evolutionary answer to surviving in a chaotic unpredictable environment. We had to outthink our own environment in order to survive. And that's that kind of planetary feature 
that now equipped us as an animal to then go on and domesticate wild animal and plant species for the beginnings of farming and agriculture, which enabled us to settle down in larger and larger cities, the beginnings of civilization. And everything we find in the world today is effectively inherited from our intelligence that was bestowed upon us from this chaotic environment where we, where we were evolving. Um, there's an interesting bit in your book where you show an aerial, a satellite picture of the Earth mm. at night yeah. uh, with the, the kind of dispersion of, of, of the light systems, as it were. Um, in what ways does the physical Earth, did it shape how humans migrated and, and settled in different parts of the world? Yeah, so that was, so for all of the graphics, apart from that one in Origins, uh, I created them myself. I, I've become a massive map nerd while I was researching writing this book, and I created some cartographic software myself. I wrote my own code to show different views of the Earth and then be able to layer different data sets, different distributions, different patterns on top of them to show these profound links between things to do with the world and things to do with our human history. But actually, my favorite photograph in the whole book was, was this one, which is a view of the Earth at night. And we see the artificial electric lights of our cities. So it's basically a, a heat map for where the humans live in high density today. And a lot of this kind of makes sense. So Europe, very densely populated. Eastern US, very densely populated. China, India, it kind of burns like a, a bright light on the map. But some regions of the planet are much more sparsely populated. People find it hard to live there. And these are obviously places like the deserts, which all lie in a particular band of latitudes around the Earth, because that's the way the atmosphere moves. Or rainforests are always found around the equator, because that's the way the atmosphere moves. So even just where people live today is dictated in a very, very powerful, broad brushstroke way by things like rainfall and where we can grow food to feed ourselves. But there's other features that you can see of, of our human story in this kind of snapshot of today, we see where um, there are huge fishing fleets by their electric lights off the, uh, the western coast of South America. This is where the ocean is uprising to so bring a lot of nutrients to, to feed huge shoals of fish. We can see where there are gas flares on our oil rigs in the middle of the ocean burning off the, the natural gas from that. So we can see where industry has, has been growing up. Mm. So we can really trace um, the settlement of humans according to the natural environments that worked best for those settlements. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that is true today. And with our human intelligence and our exploitation of technology, we have been able to push to colonize and live in more and more marginal places. So, for example, Las Vegas would not exist as a city in the middle of the desert uh, unless we've been able to pump water out there to drink. But, but kind of more... Uh, importantly, before the invention of electricity and uh, air conditioning, basically refrigeration, to make it a comfortable, habitable place for, for building a city. And actually, the reason that Las Vegas is where it is, is a combination of a planetary effect and a political effect. Las Vegas is just over the state boundary from California, so the state laws were different and gambling was legalized. California had a huge amount of wealth because it was on the coast, it had ports, but also had a lot of gold in its mountains. Whereas Las Vegas is on the other side of that mountain range, so it doesn't get enough rain to grow any crops for itself and have a huge uh, agricultural economy and didn't have any other natural resources to power itself, to, to, to fund itself. 
Um, so Las Vegas went down the route of effectively trying to find a way of siphoning cash back out of California by grabbing those um, uh, gold uh, prospectors, gold diggers, and attracting them across the state border to Las Vegas. It was the origin of Las Vegas, just over political boundary, but because of a planetary feature of that mountain range that dictated what it could and couldn't do. And then there's so many examples of, of that sort of deep link between us and our world and the, the Earth dictating things. Uh, another one of those uh, links is, uh, which is really interesting, is the link between tectonic plates and geopolitical boundaries. What's that connection and how often does that sort of reemerge? Well, so political boundaries often follow features of the landscape. Often you'll find, and if you just gaze across a world map today, there'll be a boundary between different nations today along a mountain range because it's hard to cross a mountain range. It's kind of a natural border. Um, and also rivers, of course, and coastlines form natural borders. And if you look back to um, the Roman Empire in its heyday, the Roman Empire was almost like a puddle settling into a depression in a pavement. It lapped up against uh, coastlines, against uh, rivers, and against uh, mountain ranges. It, to a certain extent, it had a natural extent. And at the same period in history, the Han Dynasty, Han China, also extended up to natural boundaries of rainforests and, and deserts. And if we talk about the Roman Empire, looking at a religious map of Europe today, we can still see the old limits of the Roman Empire to do with where people are predominantly Roman Catholic, Protestant, um, or the Greek Orthodox Church. It follows the ancient limits of the Eastern and Western Roman Empires, which in turn followed natural landscape features of rivers, coastlines, and mountain ranges. So we can trace these boundaries even today in the social groupings and the political groupings that exist in the 21st century. Yeah, so, so humans are natural migrants. We, we fundamentally migrated out of East Africa where we evolved, but for the tens of thousands of years since then, people have been washing back and forth across the land and around the world um, restlessly. We're like a huge living tide moving back and forth. It makes no sense at all to be talking about natives in any particular region and immigrants coming on. Everyone is an immigrant, just how far back you look. And so when humans have been moving around the world, those migrations have naturally been uh, influenced by where it is easy to walk and where it's harder to walk. There are natural corridors around the world. The natural corridors coming in from uh, Asia and off the steppes into Europe. That dictated how people um, migrated into and out of Europe, but also then also dictated where the major invasion routes were when uh, steppe nomadic people came out, when the Huns came out of Europe and ended up leading to the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. Um, when the Mongols came out of the steppes, they followed these natural highways in the landscape. Whereas something like the Himalayas, it's a pretty good barrier to stop human migrations um, en masse or armies marching. And, and you write that the Great Wall of China follows a natural uh, line in a sense as well. Yeah, so the Great Wall of China, you would immediately think is a defensive barrier. And of course it is from the, uh, the empires of, of China defending themselves against the barbarian hordes, as, as they would refer to it. But actually what we're looking at, in, in a deeper sense, is peoples to the north in the steppes, which is a particular climate band across Eurasia, where it's too dry 
uh, for trees or crops to grow. So that forces upon people that live there a nomadic existence. You're pastoralists. You have huge herds of, of livestock as your econ- economic base and to keep you alive. Contrasting further to the south where there is enough moisture in the soil to grow crops to feed huge agricultural empires. So the Great Wall of China, on a fundamental level, follows an ecological line across the continent between the dry steppes region to the north and the damp agricultural lands to the south. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. History's got a lot to teach science as well in terms of everything is not always black and white. Science isn't just about facts and figures and remembering them and regurgitating them in an exam. It's about how you come to understand things in the first place. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Of course, another aspect of human migration is the age of exploration, which mm, is sometimes yeah. a nice way of putting colonization <laughs> and invasion. And European imperialism, yeah. Exactly. Um, how, what um, environmental forces are behind that part of history and how how do they shape uh, the world today, I suppose? Well, when Europe... So in the early 1500s, Europe was a primitive, backwards, uneducated, uncultured part of the world. We were right on the extremity of this broad, sprawling continent of Eurasia. We're right, right on the end, right on the terminus of the trade routes networks draped across the continent. So things like the Silk Roads. And that didn't didn't just mean we were the last to receive trade goods, but also anything else that was transported and moved along those networks. So culture and philosophies and religions and understanding and knowledge 
and technology. Europe was um, received the blast furnace a thousand years after it was developed in China. And when Europe started looking out into the wider world, looking to explore and kind of wondering what was, was kind of over that horizon, we couldn't head east back along those Silk Roads because we we're blocked at that period in history by a strong Islamic empire. So instead, Europe had to look the opposite way out west, out into that vast gulf of the Atlantic Ocean that people had just avoided in their right minds. It was stormy. It was dangerous. Ships just disappeared. And the stepping stones, if you like, that first started drawing out Portuguese and then Spanish and then soon enough British, French, Dutch navigators and, and, and sea captains were the, Atlant uh, the Atlantic archipelagos, places like Madeira, the Azores, um, Gran Canaria. These, these are effectively just the tips of, of volcanoes in the sea. And as, our, as these explorers started pushing out into the Atlantic and piecing together the jigsaw puzzle of where winds blow in different directions in different parts of the world, we began to piece together this global picture of how the atmosphere moves, the pattern of winds wrapped around the planet. We began to realize that there are bands of winds in predictable places that blow in one direction and then the other. So you're not just mapping the coastline or mapping the landscape, you're actually mapping the direction of the winds. You can link them together, almost like conveyor belts, take you into different directions. And so this global pattern of, of, of the way the winds blow, the trade winds, the westerlies, the roaring forties, this dictated where you can establish a long-range intercontinental trade route. That dictated where you then establish your ports and your fortresses. That then dictated the entire pattern of human, uh, sorry, of European colonialism and expansion and empire building in the early days of uh, globalization and the making of our modern world. And even today, in the, the pattern of nations and, and economics, you can still see that distinctive fingerprint of wind patterns um, in where things are and, and, and what will be used in terms of... Um, so my favorite example of that is California, which we've mentioned already. The reason that California became so strategically important for hundreds of years of, of, of history was that is just so happens to be the only place that you can get to after sailing across the Pacific. It's just where the winds deliver you to. So after spending weeks and weeks and weeks crossing the Pacific, the, the greatest ocean on the planet, you have to have somewhere to resupply you with food and fresh drinking water. So places like uh, San Francisco and, and San Diego were founded in the first place to resupply Spanish um, galleons crossing the Pacific. Um, same with Cape Town and the Dutch and across uh, the Indian Ocean to get to the, the Spice Islands. The fact that we can piece together that jigsaw puzzle and we can get an understanding is remarkable to me as a layperson mm. today in the 21st century. Who were the historical figures who worked that out? So throughout Origins, throughout the book, I almost deliberately avoid giving dates of things happening or names of people who did it. Because I think there are plenty of history books which give you, you know, the names of kings and queens and revolutionaries and, and great generals. And I'm not saying that's not an important aspect of history. But I think below that, there are these grand themes and trends. And in a sense, I don't care actually that it was Spanish explorers that crossed the Atlantic, discovered the Americas from a European point of view, 
and then establish a trade route across the Pacific between California, Mexico, and China, because the Chinese could equally have done the same thing. It happened to be Europeans doing it earlier. The Chinese, through a different quirk of fate or history, could have done it. But if they did, they would have done it along exactly the same trade route, because that was dictated by a, a universal feature of our planet. And it's those universals and um, invariable aspects of if history had played out differently, these things would probably have been very, very similar, even if it had been a different culture or a different state or a different nation that, that happened on it first. Do you think um, that sort of backgrounding of human agency almost mm. is, is something that you were aiming for? Do you think it uh, offers us a new sense of our own uh, role in governing our own history. Do you think that we can go too far in saying that humans may not have any agency in that sort of decision? So I'm not denying human agency. And clearly, um, human decisions and then population scale effects like economics and sociology and, and politics, of course, I'm not saying they haven't been important in history. What I am saying is that beneath those, there are deeper levels of explanation which happen over longer timescales and larger regional spatial scales. And I think they have been largely overlooked in tellings of history, which I'm trying to redress in this book, In Origins. And just giving us a, a, a new perspective on the playing out of history and also explaining why our world, the one that we live in and take for granted in many respects, is the way that it is, but also helping us look towards the horizon and face the challenges of our future. So, for example, climate change is um, very rightly a huge concern for our civilization, our society at the moment. We are, we are pushing the chemistry of the atmosphere and the ocean and changing the climate of the entire world. And we can understand what changing conditions we're likely to encounter in the coming decades of human-driven climate change by looking at natural examples of something similar in the Earth's past. And for example, the closest natural analogue to our current human-driven climate change happened about 55 million years ago called the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, the PETM. So by understanding the PETM in Earth's history, we can understand our near-term future and how to avoid the worst effects of what we might be about to trigger. Hmm. So in a way, taking our individual uh, stories out of the picture helps us make sense of this wider, wider story. Yeah, exactly. So in, in Origins, I talk about um, populations of people rather than individuals. Something that really interests me um, and does tie into the, some of those sort of more human stories is the idea of Britain as an island nation. You write a bit about this in the book. Um, how should we understand Britain's history specifically in terms of... <laughs> so I wondered, Matt, if we were going to be able to avoid the bee bomb. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I do talk in the book about the original Brexit, as it were, the sudden catastrophic event that formed Britain as an island in the first place. And geologically, what happened is that during a previous ice age, not the most recent ice age that enabled... Uh, humanity to disperse and migrate around the entire world, but in fact an ice age, several ice ages before that. We, we've had something like 50, 60 ice ages in this current period of chilly earth climate. And during an ice age about half a million years ago, a huge lake of meltwater got trapped between two ice sheets 
and what was a land bridge between Britain and France. We used to be physically connected to the continent by 30 kilometers wide of, of rock. And this huge lake of meltwater inevitably burst its bank, uh, burst through that dam, and very, very quickly in what geologists call a mega flood. And when a geologist who's used to talking about very large scales and very long time frames calls something a mega flood, it was a big deal. And it gouged out uh, huge channels um, with these great big um, coursing waterfalls, a lot of the English Channel. And the White Cliffs of Dover today effectively no more than great stumps left behind from the gouging out of, of that land bridge that connects us to, to uh, the continent. And clearly the fact that Britain is an island, the islandness of Britain has been hugely influential through our history. We, we've not been invaded by a major army for over a thousand years, since 1066, and the replacement of the old regime by the Normans and, and that kind of different style of governance and, and society. And it's not just the preservation of our um, sovereignty by being behind this natural moat and being easy to defend ourselves, but you could argue that that um, diminishment of threat from the outside world, of, of external threats, allowed British society to progress slightly quicker. There was a faster disbursement of power from kings and queens and oligarchs down to noblemen and then ultimately the British public. And we were early in the development of a, of a, of a democracy, of a parliamentary democracy. You could argue that was due to our islandness. But actually the, the fact that Britain is an island has been hugely influential for the course of history across the whole of Europe as well. Because we've, or the fact that we have one island, strong fortress nation, has prevented any other nation from developing and establishing a empire across Europe. Uh, Napoleon wasn't able to, Hitler wasn't able to, Britain was able to kind of fall back and then um, kind of launch back and, and, and maintain that equilibrium across Europe. For, for hundreds and hundreds of years, Europe has been a jigsaw of lots of states all competing against each other. And it's that competitiveness that I think you can very reasonably argue has been accelerating um, technological progress across Europe. We should talk a bit about technology, but mm. also economy. Um, to what extent is the modern global economy shaped by the kind of forces we've been talking about? Well, today's economy is shaped as much by the natural landscape as the economies of states you know, back through thousands and thousands of years are. Economies are, in very simple terms, this is the stuff that my state has got access to, but these are the set of things that we need to run our society, whether that is wood or metals or enough food. And anything you've got more than you need, you trade with someone else who's got what you need in return. So you swap and you, things like currency and money were invented to lubricate that process of trade. So the map of the earth and where things which are useful can be found clearly has a huge influence on the economies of different nations. And as society changes and things become more or less important, that then kind of shifting equilibrium then has huge effects for the history as well. So, for example, copper was enormously important through the Bronze Age. You mix copper with tin and you get the first 
metal alloy that humanity worked out how to use for tools and weapons. And then with the passage of the Bronze Age into the Iron Age, metal became much more democratic. Iron is a lot more uniformly distributed around the planet than copper, which on the whole can only be found in small little pockets. And copper basically became irrelevant until the coming of the electrical age, when a different property of copper became useful to us technologically, and now it is, um, you know, in real terms, shot up again in, in value. So there's, of course, this hugely rich and fascinating interaction and dialogue between the planet and where things can be found and what humans need for their lives and what technologically is, is valuable. Hmm. Is there a resource today that's most valuable? Could we give this current age a metal name? Well, so we are today as deeply in the Iron Age as ancient Rome was. We still build a huge amount of stuff out of iron or the iron carbon alloy steel. But with our technological progress and the adoption of more and more metals into our kind of repertoire, if you like. So, so for example, if I were to ask you, how many metals do you think you've got on your person right now. So, you know, a bit of copper perhaps and some coins, some spare change in your pocket. Maybe you got some steel studs in your pair of jeans or something. But in total, how many metals do you think you could put your hand on right now? I mean, I suppose my phone probably has a lot that I'm not even aware of. This is the key. So your phone or any other piece of modern electronics has probably got 20 or 30 different kinds of metals in. Metals you've probably wouldn't even recognise the name of. And there'll only be trace amounts of many of those metals in there, but modern electronics would not work without these tiny trace amounts of what we call rare earth elements, REEs. And linking back to what we were just talking about, at the moment, you can only, or oh, REEs are only mined economically, cheaply enough, um, basically in China. Something like 80% of global demand for REEs. And that's not just all the electronics we use around the world, but a lot of catalysts we use for um, the industrial chemistry and basically kind of feeding people um, all rely on rare earth elements. And China at the moment is holding the trump card on, on providing those for the rest of the world. And I, I say trump card with a little bit of a twinkle in my eye, because right now there is a global trade war between the two biggest superpowers on the planet, China and America. And China literally holds the trump card in the interactions with, with Donald Trump because America cannot afford for China to go, OK, guys, we're not giving you all of these metals that you need so desperately for, you, for your economy. So that's an example of how the physical earth shapes human politics in a way that's outside of human control. Absolutely. And, and there's a number of other examples of what you could call geopolitics and features the earth that are hiding invisibly behind the headlines that we read about um, or listen to on the, on the morning radio or reading the newspaper on the breakfast table. There's a lot of features of the planet that I explore in Origins hiding behind those headlines. Are there any specific historical periods or phenomena that we should understand in this context? Well, again, I would, I would argue that you can't pick out any one particular period of history as being more or less important than all the others. The, the modern world we find in today is a fusion, is a blending of previous historical 
periods. And clearly things which happened more recently, for example, the Second World War, have got kind of louder echoes in our modern world. But then you could argue that things that happened a long time ago, because they've become locked in, have, have also got a huge influence on how we live today. So for example, again, to pick something that you might think was a boring, prosaic, everyday example, most of us, every day of our lives, for breakfast, will have a slice of toast or a bowl of cereal. And indeed, it's not just these cereal crops, wheat or um, barley or oats or corn and maize. We don't just eat them for breakfast. We eat them as our staple diet for every meal of every day of our lives. And indeed, the planet has been behind kind of influencing what we, what we eat for breakfast because all those cereal crops are grass species. We are as dependent in our modern world of glittering skyscrapers and cities of eating grass as the cows and the sheep we leave out uh, to pasture in the fields. And the reason that our ancestors, 10,000 years ago, more or less, decided to domesticate grass species for the staple crops to, to feed themselves rather than any number of tens of thousands of other wild species they could have is because grass species ecologically grow very quickly, produce little dollops of condensed energy in their seed, which we can eat, and they don't waste energy by creating stout frames for themselves and bark and wood like, like a tree does or other plant species. So our ancestors 10,000 years ago picked wild plant species that suited our needs. And, and we eat those. I, I was on the train up from London to, to your offices in, in the studio here, and I'd made myself a little microwavable pot of porridge oats. I was eating something I inherited from my ancestor and our ancestors 10,000 years ago. And, and it's still that influential, influential in our everyday lives today. Um, you mentioned climate change earlier. How do you think that understanding this enormous sweeping history can help us reconceptualize or tackle even climate change today in the 21st century? Well, the starting premise for Origins was beginning with this idea that I think we're all familiar with now that humanity has become the dominant environmental force on planet Earth with our industry and our factories and our cars and our airplanes and our mining. We are affecting the planet uh, and its environment and its climate more than natural systems had previously done so. But as a species, as, as a people, we've only recently acquired that supreme power and, and therefore responsibility as well. It's only really been since the Industrial Revolution that we've been having such a profound impact on the world we live in and our environment. And so what I wanted to do with Origins was kind of look on the other side of this coin of the Anthropocene of this recent age of humanity and not see how we are impacting our planet, but look at the far longer history and far longer story of how our planet has impacted us and guided and influenced and directed our history. But as we were saying earlier, we still need to recognise that, that the planet can bite back and it is biting back now with climate change. So we still need to clearly respect um, the, the, these natural forces and work with them and make sure we don't overexploit natural resources. Because um, even for selfish reasons, we could end up collapsing our own support base um, if we, if we overexploit and overmine and sea levels start rising, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Are there any other ways that you like your book 
to shift how we understand human history? Well, I think in general. So to be honest with you, the main reason I sat down to recite, to research and then write Origins was because I'd read other big history books uh, like Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari that you've probably heard of and have been absurdly successful. I just found them a bit frustrating. They made broad brushstrokes, arm-sweeping statements, which were interesting, but they never seemed to be backed up with why the author thinks that to be the case. What is the evidence for this? Could it have been different? You know, why do you, why, what's driven you to, to write this? So kind of testily, I suppose, I wanted to write a big history book, but properly for a change as a scientist and provide the reasoning behind it and the logic and the evidence. And if you look at the back of Origins, if you're having a sleepless night, you'll see something like 400, 500 references that I've researched upon and, and referred to in the course of this book. So for me, I think the take-home message of something like Origins is big-scale thinking, macro-scale thinking is very important if we're trying to join the dots in this very complex modern world we find ourselves today. But you've still got to think scientifically, rationally, and back up your beliefs and your thoughts with the justifications for them. And I think this trend of interdisciplinarity, of communication between the different sciences or different um, fields of, of understanding in general, is a really important trend that's, that's gathering a lot of momentum right now. We can only start facing these huge challenges of our modern world if we you know, reach out of our individual silos and talk with, with people from different backgrounds and share information and understanding with each other. What do you think that scientists can teach historians about the way in which we approach history then? Well, I think scientists have got lots to teach to historians, but also to learn from historians. I think communication should always, always be a two-way street. It's never standing up with a megaphone and just blurting out to whoever will listen um, what you think. It's about listening to what other people think as well. And I think as a, as a discipline, science communication has been doing quite well at that. You know, not just... Um, communicating with the public about the importance of vaccinating your children, for example, but listening to the public about what their genuine concerns and fears might be. What has driven a mother and a father who love their child very dearly to decide to not vaccinate their child? That they don't have an invalid reason. It's, it's important to understand why they've come to that conclusion. Um, because it is, if when you look at the evidence, it is safer to vaccinate a child individually for that child and for society as a whole. Um, so I think in communication, it being a two-way street is very, very important. And as a history has got a lot to teach science as well, in terms of everything is not always black and white. Science isn't just about facts and figures and remembering them or regurgitating them in an exam. It's about how you come to understand things in the first place. And history has got a lot to bring to that discussion as well. Are there any sort of unresolved mysteries or things that you would like to understand better as a result of having written this book? <laughs> so I, I kind of finish off uh, Origins with, with, a, with a dot, dot, dot. So I've, I've, as far as possible, tried to tell in broad brushstrokes the whole of the human story from our origins as intelligent apes in East Africa right up to the emergence of civilization through recent centuries of history to the modern world. And I've also tried to explore 
the, the features of the earth behind the headlines and current affairs and top news stories. And I'd love to jump in a, you know, kind of a time machine, travel 100 years into the future and see where the world will be heading further down the line and, and, and see how, you know, our current story continues to, to play out. That was Lewis Dartnell. His book, Origins, How the Earth Made Us, is out now, published by Bodley Head. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in next on Friday when Stephen Bates will be discussing why the Corn Laws cause such a controversy. (laughs) 